As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the chair back Bibles that should be nearby, and you'll find this evening's text once again on page 1011. Our ongoing studies through James comes to the first of a few in a row of sustained sections after a first chapter that had lots of pithy little sayings, even though it was connected along the way, as we've seen in recent weeks. And our text today focuses, as you'll soon see, first 13 verses of chapter 2 on this issue of partiality. So let me read the first 13 verses and then pray for a time and we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to us once again. Uh, through his perfect word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, Or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And are they not the ones that blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, or you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we are grateful that you have called us into your holy and beloved family. We do pray this evening as we come to a text that speaks once again of how we are to behave towards one another, think of one another and treat one another, that you would give us the mind of Christ. He who though was rich became poor on our behalf. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I suppose when you came into this room tonight, or of course, when you came into this room, many of you, this Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, you didn't have to give a whole lot of thought as to why you were going to sit where you actually ended up sitting. Uh, for many of you, I would suppose it's just the same place that you always sit. Therefore, you don't think too much about where you're going to sit. It's always either on the exact same row, and if he's, even if it's not the exact same row, it's on the very same side of the room. If it's not the same side of the room, it's probably somewhere close to the front or close to the back. And there's been periods throughout church history where people likewise haven't had to give much thought, but perhaps for different reasons, why or where they were going to sit. 
So, for example, take a New England congregation in 1734, pastored by none other than Jonathan Edwards. If you showed up at his church on Sunday morning, you would never give a thought as to where you were going to sit because you had assigned seating. If you came to the front of the room, that means you were wealthy. That means you were a landowner. If you were sitting in the back of the room or sitting in a balcony, that meant you were poor. That meant you didn't have much land. This kind of seating arrangement prevailed in much of the English-speaking congregations throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, and very much was the reality against which James is going to speak in our text tonight. Because you could walk into those churches if you knew the context and the culture at the time, and without having any great awareness of who was in front of you, you could say, rich, poor, wealthy, impoverished, because they were separated, they were distinct, they were actually made out in a particular way. And James, of course, is going to speak against that tonight in our 13 verses as he talks about the sin of partiality. And one thing you want to think about as you come to James chapter 2 is that you want to notice that this is the first time in James's letter that he has any sustained teaching on a particular subject. Because if you were with us through chapter 1, what we saw him doing was rarely sticking on one given topic for more than two or three, perhaps four verses. There was a a rich thread of connection through chapter 1, but he was seemingly bouncing all over the place as soon as he got to a particular place. But it's here tonight for the first time in his letter that he's actually going to stop, he's going to sit, he's going to stare at a very pressing and pertinent issue clearly to his audience. But as I hope that we're going to see along the way tonight, it still is pressing, it's pertinent, and it very much is pointed for people like you and me, even in the 21st century, this sin of partiality. It's in fact probably so common in our culture, so pervasive in our world, this sin of favoritism, that we don't even realize is happening around us all the time. Because think of the ways in which just ordinarily our culture And our world today will prize the rich over the poor, the successful over the failing, the beautiful over the ordinary, the strong over the weak. And what James is going to do in this passage tonight for our attention as God's people, it's almost as though what he wants to do is take the truth of God's word and put up a sign, if you will, and hammer it onto our hearts. It's simply a sign that says, when you come into God's house, no favoritism allowed. That's what the sign says. And he's going to show you why favoritism has no place in true faith. That really is the theme of this passage. Favoritism has no place in true faith. And he's going to show you that in four particular ways in our 13 verses. So just to make sure we're aware of where we are in James's instruction. If you weren't with us last week, what we saw him tell us is the word has great importance. It has great significance and centrality in the Christian life. If you glance back to verse 21, you'll see that his central command there was that we receive with meekness the implanted word. But then he goes on to say, don't just hear it. You must do it. You must keep it. You must obey it. And at the end of the chapter, he's giving his attention in the final two verses to what we said were three parts or three aspects of true faith, of real religion. He said, if you are going to be a faithful doer of the word, you've got to keep your tongue under control. You've got to secondly, have compassion on the needy. And thirdly, you've got to keep yourself unstained from the world. 
And as James often does, if you just kind of have eyes to see and you see how paragraphs flow into each other, it's oftentimes something in that very last sentence of a paragraph seems to generate what's going to come now in at least the next paragraph or a couple of paragraphs. So it is certainly possible that you could make a point that all three of those aspects of real religion at the end of James chapter 1 are in view in various ways in our passage tonight, but it is no doubt that central point of real religion, true faith, has compassion on the needy that seems to generate what James wants us to see tonight. Favoritism has no place in true faith. And reason number one is that favoritism doesn't glorify God's Son. So look again at verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality. Now, if, if you're not familiar with James, I hope you're getting familiar with James as we've read this book consecutively in recent months. You're now hearing it studied and preached on Sunday evenings. You've got to appreciate he is very much a blunt man of God. He doesn't mince words. He's very direct. He's very concise. He's very clear. It's like a professor who loves to see a term paper that makes it patently obvious what the thesis of this paper is. That's what James is doing here, isn't he, in this section. Here's the thesis statement. No partiality allowed. Now, children, though, what is partiality? What does it mean to be partial? Well, the word here in the original would mean something more literally like receiving a face. It's essentially painting this picture of you treating someone in a particular way because of how they look. And it's simply just that. And you might know your Bible well enough to know that in the New Testament, partiality, favoritism, it was a normal problem, not just for church members, but actually for church leaders and even apostles. Do you remember how this worked out in the life of the apostle Peter? If you find him in Acts chapter 10, he has to receive divine revelation through this divine dream where he concludes at the end of this divine revelation, I now know that God shows no partiality. In other words, Gentiles are included in Christ's kingdom. But even that divine revelation didn't seem to take great deep root in Peter's life because by the time you get to Galatians chapter 2, you might know that uh, little old Paul, he's up in Peter's face because Peter was eating comfortably with the Gentiles, but then the important influential Jews showed up and he began to shun the Gentiles and pay attention to the Jews. And so this is partiality. It's based on looks, but this is ethnic partiality. What James is more concerned about is not ethnic partiality, but economic partiality. You'll see in verse 2 and 3, he paints the picture. He tells us exactly what he has in mind. He says, here's what's happening in your midst, evidently. His readers and his hearers consider two men that come into your congregation. That's probably best to think about it, like coming into worship on the Lord's Day. One, by virtue of his clothing, his external adornment is obviously rich. The other, by virtue of the same, is obviously poor. And some of you are taking the rich man and giving him the place of prominence, the place of influence, going so far as saying to the poor man, well, just sit at my feet. So, what are they doing? Receiving a face. Paying attention to what they see and treating accordingly. And James, you notice in verse 4, says this is so wrong because they made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. But to go back to verse 1, this is why it's such a problem. Notice the end of verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, students, you might have had a time in, in your life where 
Maybe it was a niece, nephew. It could have been a cousin, of course. Maybe even a sibling What was young, an infant. And that, that niece, nephew, cousin, sibling, uh, the parent came along and, and gave you the infant. And as they're handing you this little girl, as they're handing you this little boy, it says, now, hold the head, support the head. Make sure that you support the body and hold it just right. Because there's a way in which you have to hold it. That's proper. That's appropriate. And James seems to be saying the same thing here with the faith that we hold in Jesus Christ. There is a right way to hold it, to live it, to do it. And in this context, it means without partiality. Because favoritism doesn't glorify God's Son. And we'll come back to that at the very end. But point number two, favoritism doesn't honor God's grace. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So that language there, if you notice and you have eyes to see the language of God has chosen those who are poor. That's language of sovereign grace, isn't it? That he has chosen those that would be included in his family. Now we know, don't we, that God chooses the rich, he chooses the poor, he chooses the Jew, he chooses the Gentile. Anyone that belongs and gains a seat in God's family at his table, it's all of sovereign grace. It's all of sovereign mercy. But what James is wanting us to recognize here is that there is a peculiar sweetness that belongs to God's grace if you are poor. You're not going to find a beatitude in the New Testament for the rich. But you'll find Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You're not going to find anything more really than warnings to the rich in the New Testament. Well, why? Because rich and wealthy people tend to be spiritually indifferent and independent. They're altogether self-sufficient. What do you need God for? You have everything you need supplied through your own stuffed bank account. But for the poor, what is the gospel? Nothing other than giving them good news where they don't have any good news. You know, if you ever have a chance to travel around the world, you'll, you'll see this manifesting itself over and over. And that's an encouraging reason to get out there and see the world insofar as you're able to do that. I remember years ago being in India for several weeks, and I was preaching and teaching, and most of our preaching opportunities were all happening in these villages in kind of a remote area. And every single time we'd go into one of these village settings, it'd be a gathering that was actually quite large, and so obvious before your eyes was the truth that the gospel was attracting those who are poor. Because these were in part of India where there were rich people around. And sometimes they would be at these gatherings as well. Uh, but overwhelmingly it was the poor people that were flocking to the good news of Jesus Christ. Because what is the gospel? But for the homeless person, good news of an eternal home. For someone who's hungry, it's good news of heavenly bread. For someone who's thirsty, it's good news of living water. For someone who's hopeless, it's good news of him who is the hope of glory. That's why James wants them to know and recognize that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. So in fact, if you had the eyes of God, you would see them, wouldn't you? As being rich when they appear poor to you. That's why God can even, of course, tell Samuel, of course, when he's thinking about King David and anointing him, wondering who's going to be this king, and eventually he hears the words, well, well, you look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. Thus he can say in verse 6, notice, 
those who have walked in favoritism and partiality, you have dishonored the poor man. Even further, you can see in verses 6 and 7, it's almost as Joe James is reaching through this letter, wanting to, to grab his hearers by the heart and saying something akin to what we might say today is, what are you doing? You're giving all of this preference to the rich. They're the ones that oppress you. They're the ones that drag you to court. They're the ones that blaspheme God's honorable name. So favoritism doesn't glorify God's Son. It doesn't honor God's grace. You'll notice now in verse 8 through 11, it doesn't obey God's law. Verse 8 and 9, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is playing here a role that seems like he's a prosecuting attorney. He's, he's intending, isn't he, based on verse 9. He wants to convict the heart regarding the sin of partiality. Especially here, students, what you want to think about is he's trying to convict the heart to understand that partiality, a favoritism, is a big-time offense. And to prove that, notice verse 10 and 11, he continues, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So basically, it's as though what James is telling his hearers now. It's, oh, you think, I may have only committed the sin of partiality, but at least I haven't committed adultery. Or, yeah, I may have shown a little favoritism, but I haven't murdered anybody. And he's saying, no, if you have broken the law in any part, you have broken the law in every part. Now, here's a way in which you maybe could illustrate this. Children, think about it in this way. Uh, say you were to be at your house one day, and you're throwing a baseball around with a friend, and perhaps you missed the catcher to whom you were throwing, and that baseball just went straight through a bedroom window at your house and crashed all down. And your mom or dad comes out, what'd you do to the window? Well, no kid's going to say, I didn't do anything to the window. I just hit a particular part of the window. And the rest just came shattering down. No, they would say, you, you broke the window. You may have broken it in one particular part, but you broke the window. You see that? You may have committed the sin of partiality, but you broke the law. And therefore, you're under its just condemnation, is what he says. Which is why it leads into our fourth section. That favoritism doesn't understand God's judgment. Because look at how he continues in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. It's obvious enough, isn't it, that those who commit the sin of partiality, those, as he says, of course, even in verse 4 and 6, those who have judged themselves are now made liable to that same judgment. Those who have judged without mercy are now made liable to a merciless judgment. What does partiality deserve? What does partiality invite? But God's eternal judgment. Thus, James ends, notice verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Now, some people think that that final phrase, it's almost as though they want us to believe that God's attribute of mercy will eventually win out over his attribute of justice. And that certainly can't be true because you can't divide God's attributes because God himself can't be divided. In context, all he's saying is this. Those who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ, therefore those that have true faith, are those who show mercy. And it's at the final judgment that they will now be reckoned by virtue of that mercy worked in them through the Spirit. Mercy accounted to them, credited to them by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They will now not receive the judgment their sin deserves, but the mercy of God as a result. It's why even Jesus, as James so often does throughout his letter, he seems to just exude this teaching of Jesus and alluding to it all over the place in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus wants to give this teaching about the final judgment. He gives a parable. Some of you might know it quite well. And what he says is going to separate those who are sheep and those who are goats as whether or not you showed mercy to those in my covenant community that were needy. If you showed mercy... Yes, you will get a seat and gain a place in God's heavenly kingdom. But if you showed no mercy to my people when they were in need, that's only hellfire and brimstone, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that will be your lot. So therefore, to promote, protect, perpetuate partiality, that always comes from a mind that doesn't glorify God's Son, doesn't honor God's grace, doesn't obey God's law, and doesn't understand God's judgment. I read this story recently about a middle school student in 2004, January of 2004, who came to a middle school in Nevada with this quarter cup of metallic mercury. And I didn't know this because I'm no scientist, that when metallic mercury is exposed to the air, it evaporates immediately and seems to contaminate everything within reach. And so this child, for reasons I don't really understand, brought an open quarter cup of metallic mercury to a middle school. And it was let loose upon the air and subsequently began to contaminate students, contaminate clothing, contaminate classrooms, contaminate buses, doing untold damage, certainly a large amount of monetary damage, according to that school district's footing of the bill to decontaminate everything that was involved. Just a tiny little bit of poison that begins to shut things down, infect and infiltrate that which was once healthy. And in every way, the Bible wants you to understand that partiality and favoritism is that kind of poisonous sin. It may be small, it may be somewhat acceptable, dare we say even respectable in our time, but if it goes unchecked and it is not mortified, it will just begin to contaminate, it will begin to infiltrate, it will begin to tear apart that which was once healthy. So to make sure that it doesn't tear us apart in that way, let me bring out just two final things as we begin to close for your attention. First of which, we want to address partiality with urgency. So James is telling us, among other things at least, we must address partiality with urgency. It's right, isn't it, that he gets to the point, as James so often does, with this tone of warning at the end of the passage, that those who have not shown mercy will get a judgment without mercy. And it can only be that way, can't it? For you haven't glorified God's Son, you haven't honored God's grace, you haven't obeyed God's law. 
as you've preferred some people over others. So what might be some ordinary ways in which favoritism and partiality might work itself out in our context, in our culture? Because I dare say that for many in our context and culture, it may not be economic partiality or ethnic favoritism. It certainly could be. As it seems like it's more common, isn't it, perhaps, that it's a partiality towards those who are in power, towards those who have influence. Or perhaps in the most insidious and subtle of ways, it's just partiality to those, towards those with whom we are comfortable. That we'll just spend time with those who think like us, do like us, live like us. How many times have you walked into a church building talking to the exact same people you talked to last week? You talked to the week before, 16 weeks before, 84 weeks before, and then there's someone seated on a row nearby you, all alone, and no one wants to talk to them. Could it be that it's actually partiality? That's not opening your heart to receive someone who is poor in spirit that day. So James wants us to address it with urgency, this sin of partiality, but not just that. He wants us to address it with Christ's mercy. Because look back at verse 1. He says, in this thesis-like statement, so clear and so concise, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's the second of two times in James' whole letter he mentions the Lord Jesus by name. The first time was in the first verse of the very first chapter. This is the second and final time he's going to invoke the name of Jesus Christ in his instruction. Surely it must be significant then that he invokes it when he wants to warn us away, exhort us away, urge us away from this sin of favoritism. And interestingly enough, this phrase, the Lord of glory, it's one that's much debated as these things often are. Its translation could mean it's faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or as it's translated here in the ESV, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But isn't it right to simply tell us has any right to simply exhort us that insofar as you have the mind of Christ, you will be one who lives without favoritism. For Christ has no favorites. He himself was what? Eternally rich, but became poor. He was the wealthy master who stooped down to wipe servants' feet. He was the creator king of the universe that died on a cursed cross for his sinful citizens. Mercy. And now if you've turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've experienced that mercy. And he's put it in your heart, hasn't he? That you might show it to anyone, to everyone that you come across. Because favoritism it has no faith, not no place in true faith. But mercy is the majesty that belongs to the Christian life. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do ask that you would speak to us once again the good news of the gospel, knowing that your mercy is more. Father, we know our sins are many. We know the ways in which we have transgressed your law would overwhelm us if we were made to account for them. But you've paid the penalty in your son dying in our place, that we might be like him, that we might have his mind, that we might have his heart a heart of earnest mercy in all things towards all people. Work that in us by the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.